Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 1. That's the book we're working through. We'll be there for a few months. Life, there's an app for that as our current teaching series. We're talking about hope this morning. How many know what the word app means? Show of hands. What does it mean? It's short for application. Cool. Got it. It's a tool, an app on your Android or your iPhone is a tool that helps you to perform a task that makes life easier or better. How many have apps on your phone They help to make life easier or better? Kinda. Uh, I've got an app. It's actually, how many have the YouVersion app? It's a great app. I actually hear, listen to the Bible every morning. So I, I work through the complete uh, Bible read to me a couple times a year. It's a great way to uh, hear the Bible. And uh, it's good stuff. The book of Ephesians is an app for life. That's why we're working through the book. It's laid out in the way that we are to live out the Christian life. How's that? Well, it's laid out like this. First three chapters uh, give us the wealth that we have in Jesus. And the last three chapters, because it's six chapters, it gives us our walk in Christ. The first three deals with our riches in Christ. The last three deal with our responsibility. Why would it be uh, put in that order? Anybody? Why do you think that it would be in that order? It starts with our wealth and then it moves to our walk, riches, responsibility. Because listen to me, that's how the Christian life is to be lived. You flip that, you don't have the Christian life. We don't obey him to get his blessing. We have his blessing. Therefore, we obey him. I mean, the Christian life is not like any other life. It starts by having a heart that's smitten by the beauty and the glory of Christ and what he's done for us. The preoccupation is what he's done, and then we do. The doing comes out of what has been done. That's how the book's laid out. That's often how how Paul writes his letters. When you read through it, you could also see the same thing in Colossians. Pretty amazing. I mean, that's how it's done. And so, so if you find yourself preoccupied with doing as opposed to what has been done for you, and in fact, we love him because he what? He first loved us. So when you fill your heart with the love of God, you're going to be loving to others. If you're not loving to others, you don't go back to try to working harder, redouble efforts, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, try harder, whatever. You don't do that. You go back to his love. You go back to understanding who he is and what he's done for you. And so that's, that's how it's laid out. Um, and so what's interesting here, uh, once again, as we stated last week, as we kicked off this uh, teaching series through the book, uh, verses 3 through 14, chapter 1 is one long run-on sentence in the Greek with 202 words. And the translators had a hard time trying to know where to put the commas and periods. It was interesting. We do the growing notes in our uh, staff meeting. So as we were going through the growing notes, and we first of all will always read the text. As we read through the text, I had a couple staff members go, man, that's so cumbersome and so awkward. Why is it, why does it, you know, sentences are stopped right in the middle and then you start into a new, a new uh, verse and what is that all about? And I said, weren't you with us this last Sunday morning, at Easter Sunday? And I said, I, I made that point very clear. So let me make that point very clear to you that those first 14 verses, verses 3 through 14, is one long run-on sentence and it's almost hard for, for commentators to try to find out where they're going to put the the period or the commas. The point is, the more you understand God's blessing, the less you can restrain yourself and adequately articulate the multifaceted, irresistible attractiveness. It's almost kind of like this. You've ever had a friend who, who, who got a brand new job, new relationship, new car, or, or a new home or something. They are so excited. They're talking 100 miles an hour, kind of how I talk sometimes here on Sunday morning. And, uh, but they're just really excited. You can't get a word in edgewise. That's what Paul is doing in the first chapter. He is overwhelmed by the grace and the goodness of God, by the greatness and the goodness of God. He's just overwhelmed by that. So Paul is elated over the blessings of God, and he is unrestrained. And so we have really there in this first chapter, working all the way to chapter 3, really the, the riches of God's grace, all the many blessings that he mentions, and then many more that are not mentioned here are heading to the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. And ours pertain to hope. So let's talk about hope. Let's set this up before we dive into our text. Human beings are unavoidably hope-based creatures. How you live in the present inevitably shapes 
is shaped by what you think about your future, where you're headed in the future. How you live in the present is inevitably shaped by what you believe about your future. You can't avoid that. Proverbs 13, 12, maybe you're familiar with this verse. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Probably the best example of that is uh, if you had two guys and you put them in this very stuffy uh, poorly circulated kind of room for them to work and attach this object to this other object. And they were working you know, 12, uh, seven days a week, uh, 12 hours a day, very mundane tasks, very harsh uh, working environments. And as you started, you whispered in the ear of one of them, you said, at the end of every day that you work, I will give you $50. And then you whispered in the ear of the other, at the end of every day that you work, I will give you a million dollars. What do you think the difference in their processing of each day would be? Pretty drastic, wouldn't it? The one would probably, after a while, say, hey, this isn't worth it. Fifty bucks? I can go find a job making better money than this. Unless, of course, they're desperate and they're hungry, then they would probably continue to work it out. But what about the one that's getting the million dollars each and every day at the end of that day? Skippity-doo-dah, skippity-day. I mean, they would be happy. They'd be going, oh, this is easy. This is a piece of cake. Shouldn't that be our perspective when it, when it comes to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ? I mean, if you really understand hope, that's what it should be like, really, for us, that, that know Christ and know the many blessings that we have in him. You can live 40 days without food, just a few days without water, four to six minutes without oxygen, but not one single second without hope. Human beings are unavoidably hope-based creatures. In fact, if you don't have hope, you'll probably, in fact, that's why people commit suicide. I can't help but think that even in a group this large, there's probably a few of you that even have entertained it here of recent. It's because of a sense of hopelessness. By the way, there's actually a couple different ways that we take our own lives. We do it in a very quick way, and I've been, as a paramedic with Phoenix Fire and then as a pastor, I've been, been on many calls in both situations uh, to where people have taken their life with razor blades to their wrists or to their throats, bullets to their head, overdosing on, on meds. And it's sad and it's tragic because of hopelessness, a sense of hopelessness. But there's another way. It's a very slow way. We do it through addictions. Why would we be driven into these addictive behaviors, whether they be alcohol or workaholism or some form of drugs? Why would people do that to their own destruction? hopelessness they're trying to medicate themselves they're trying to bury that deep hurt and emptiness within them and that's just another way it's just a slow way of killing yourself but I want you to know that God we serve is a God of hope and that's what we're going to look at this morning so would you bow your heads with me I'd like to pray uh, Romans 15 13 I can't help but think also that maybe you're here and maybe not in a general sense you're not hopeless, but maybe it's a particular area of your life. Maybe it is a general sense, and maybe those of you that are here, it's not a, not a general sense, but a specific area of your life. Maybe it's finances. You're just feeling hopeless. You feel like giving up. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's with your health. It could be any number of things. Just by show of hands, who would say, hey, yeah, I could really use some hope, maybe in a general way or maybe in a specific way in my life. Show of hands. Show of hands. Yep. Okay. Let me pray for you. God, you saw the hands. You know our hearts. You know what we need. God, as I pray, Romans 15, 13, may you, the God of hope, fill us with all joy and peace in believing as we learn to put our trust and faith in you so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may abound, that we would literally overflow in hope as we study your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at the text. Let me bring you up to speed if you were not with us last weekend. And so this, in this book, the key verse is verse 3. If you have your Bibles open there, or you've got your iPad or iPhone out in front of you there, verse 3, blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ, past tense, with every spiritual blessing, absolute language, you have everything you need to live the kind of life we all dream about. That's what he's saying. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And so last week we talked about some of those spiritual blessings. He chose us, verse 4. Verse 5, we're adopted. 
Verse 6, he's given us grace. Verse 7, he's redeemed us. Then verse 8, we read, which he lavished, talking about God's grace once again, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. My favorite word there, lavished, lavished us with his grace. And then here we pick up our text this morning, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. And so let me answer two questions. The first one is why we can have hope. You'll notice on your notes it says why, why we can have hope, but it's why can we have hope. It should be. That's the first question. We can have hope because there is a plan. Everything is in the plan, and Jesus is the point of the plan. Second question we're going to look at is what is hope? Hope is confident, joyful expectation. Three ideas under that. My bad things will work out for my good. My truly good things can never be taken from me, and the best is yet to come. That's where we're going. You don't need to fill in the blanks yet. We will work our way through the notes. Here's the first question. Why we can have hope? Because there is a plan. We can have hope because there is a plan. Look at verse 9. Once again, let me read it. Making known to you the mystery. Anytime Paul uses the word mystery, typically he's talking about the gospel. So he says, making known to you the mystery of the will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So there's a plan, and yet there's a lot of people that don't believe that there's a plan, and even those that believe there's a plan, we struggle with the plan, okay? And uh, let me just talk about those that don't think that there's a plan, and then there are those that think that there's a plan. It's, it gets kind of confusing, but let me re- read to you a couple uh, quotes here. One is actually from William Shakespeare in his Macbeth. I I believe that he's wrong because this is what he said. Let me quote, and I quote from him, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Sounds pretty dreary, doesn't it? I mean, that's his estimation of life. And then uh, Bertrand Russell, who was a 20th century atheist, from his writing, A Free Man's Worship, this is what he said, that man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end that they were achieving. He's talking this evolutionary process. We came from nothing. Eventually, he's going to say we're really going to nothing. So everything is just big zero. So... uh, so, I mean, we're here by accident, basically, is what he's saying. So, let me, let me read that again. The, that man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcomes of accidental collocations of atoms. He goes on and talks about it a little bit more, and then he ends this writing by saying, only within the scaffolding of these truths... Only on the firm foundation, notice what he says, of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. So he's just basically saying, if we came from nothing and we're going to nothing, everything in between is just basically unyielding despair. The Bible would say that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. 14th chapter, first verse of Psalm. Why would I bring that up about these guys Uh, The reason why I bring that up is because what's interesting is that I actually know people who would say, well, they believe in the whole evolutionary process, and they believe that when you die, you really, nothing really happens, you just go to nothing, and yet they're so adamant about social justice and what is right and wrong. And here's my struggle with that, as you kind of walk through that logically. It is intellectually inconsistent to say, I don't believe in life after death, 
but in this life there is right and wrong purpose and meaning. You can't say that. There's a whole slew of people in our society today that kind of have those beliefs, and you can't say that. That's intellectually inconsistent. You can't say anything is crooked unless there's a straight edge somewhere. Would you guys agree with that? You understand what I'm saying? And so my question would be, well, what's your straight edge? If you came from nothing, you're going to nothing. And everything, every, everything in between is nothing. So regardless of what you say is social justice or whatever, or right and wrong, it doesn't exist. It's a figment of your imagination. Eventually, all of this will be gone. That's what these guys are saying, and that's what many people believe. Now, not most. Most people actually do have a belief in God of some sort. But uh, you can't say that, that anything is crooked unless there's a straight edge somewhere. And so my question would be, what is your straight edge? Well, I know that as a believer in Jesus Christ, our straight edge is this, is this book. We know that there's a God, not by speculation, but by revelation. God has revealed himself to us. You might say, well, how has he revealed himself to us? He's revealed himself to us through creation, conscience, commandments, this book, and ultimately through Jesus Christ. He showed up here. And so we believe that this book is, is infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God. It is prophetic, prophetically powerful. It is remarkably reliable with manuscript evidence. It, it is established by, by uh, eyewitness accounts that saw Jesus, were with Jesus, uh, it's credited, credited by millions of changed lives, honored by outside historians, guys that were, that were secular uh, like Josephus that wrote about the events of, of, of this book and the people of this book. It's uh, scientifically sound. It gives us wisdom that works. And so we do have a straight edge. And, and so you're saying, oh, okay, okay, Pastor, <laughs> cut to the chase. Okay, okay, let me cut to the chase. You're not an accident. I don't care what brought about the conception of you, whether it was out of wedlock, in wedlock, whether it was whatever it was. You're here by divine design. I mean, I mean, sometimes we look at our lives and we think, man, my life is so jacked up. Look at my, my family. My parents didn't even expect me to come into this world and they neglected me or they didn't want me. Or, listen, God loves you, wants you. You're here because he wanted you. There is meaning and purpose in your life. Praise God. You're not an accident. Praise God. No matter what people say, it tells us in Psalm 139, he wove you together in your mother's womb. God, the almighty God who created the heavens and the earth and he has numbered your days. And your life and your destiny is in the palm of his hand. The life and destiny of this church is in the palm of his hand. The life and destiny of this country is in the palm of his hand. The life and destiny of this whole universe is in the palm of his hand, the creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth. You have meaning and purpose. Here's your meaning and purpose. He created you as an object of his love. He adores you. He loves you. He thinks the world of you. Oh, my goodness. To look what measure he would go to to, to redeem your life. He gave his life for you. That's the creator of the universe. That's why I said it always, it always starts with him. And then all we do is respond. We just go, oh my goodness, I can't believe. And then we want to live for him. Why wouldn't you want to live for him? Why wouldn't you want to love him? Why wouldn't you just pedal to the metal all out for him? He had a plan. He created you. You are here to have relationship with him. And nothing is more life-liberating or soul-satisfying than to know him, the creator of the universe. So that's, that's what we're talking about here. That's what he's talking about here. There is a plan. And oh, by the way, everything is in the plan. Next, fill in the blank. Everything is in the plan. Did you notice that in verse 11? Let me read it. In him we have obtained an inheritance... By the way, that word inheritance means most treasured possession. I like that. Having been predestined according to the purpose 
of him, notice these words, who works all things. Let me ask you this. What are all things? Is that like, is that like everything? Would all things be everything? How about, uh, how about would, uh, would really, really good days when you get a raise, would that be the all things? Would that be part of that all things? Yeah. How about really, really bad things when you get fired? Would that be part of the all things? So the good, the bad, the ugly, it would all fit within the all things, all in his plan, in the palm of his hand. He is working all things, all things for his glory and our good. We'll, we'll attach that here in just a moment. But that's what he's saying, to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So would that, would that include suffering? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Everything that goes on on this planet is right here. To the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There is a plan and everything is in the plan and so that immediately kind of brings up something that we all struggle with is what about suffering? I mean, is that in, in God's hands too? Yes, yes. Yes, it is. Thank God. Thank God that sin and suffering is restrained by God and in his hands and he directs it and uses it for, for his glory and our good because if, if he didn't, oh my goodness, this place would be a hell on earth more so than it is now. My life would be wrecked and ruined if it wasn't for God's work in the midst of my life and through sin and suffering and how he's worked in that to bring me to him. I love the book by Johnny Erickson Tata, When God Weeps. She makes a couple of very profound statements in that book in dealing with suffering. She says that God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And then she goes on, she says, that God controls evil, otherwise evil would be out of control. And so that's what, this is what the Bible teaches us. Thank God, thank God that he, he's in control and he works and weaves and uses all of that. It doesn't catch him by surprise. He's not, he's not pacing the corridors of heaven, wringing his hands. He's in control. We might not fully understand it, but we trust him in the midst of that. And that brings up another big question. By the way, the word will literally means blueprint when he says in verse 11, he says, works all things according to the counsel of his will. It means blueprint. So there's a blueprint. He's got a blueprint. He knows what he's up to. He knows what he wants to do. He knows what he's going to accomplish. And he'll use, yeah, suffering is the result of man's sin, but he will use all of that ultimately for his glory and our good, but there's another question here. This brings up the question that man has wrestled, been wrestling with since the beginning of time. Are we free or is there a plan that we cannot escape? So we're talking here the difference between free will and fatalism or determinism. Or it's put also uh, uh, God's sovereignty, divine sovereignty or human responsibility. Which one is that? And so Free will kind of works like this. Modern American popular culture says, I quote from Back to the Future 3 movie. How many have ever seen Back to the Future? Number three, Professor Brown said this, the future is whatever you make it, so make it a good one. And that's, that is the heart of American thinking, isn't it? I mean, how many times I've heard these sports stars uh, say, hey, I... Uh, you know, you can be whatever you want to be and you, you can just set your mind to it and you can accomplish it. No, you can't, okay? Uh, I could not ever even come close to golfing as good as Bubba Watson, okay? Uh, I couldn't even come close to that. In fact, I wanted to uh, play professional football and kick field goals. I thought, well, that'd be kind of a safe uh, job and I could, barely kick, I could barely kick the ball off the tee, and, I mean, when you tell a, you know, at that time, I was like 
about five foot, weighed 100 pounds. Tell that to a kid that wants to play professional football. And if I, and I'm bigger, but I don't have the athleticism that would be necessary to do that. So DNA really matters a lot. So, so it's to a certain level. I mean, that's not really true when we tell people that. Because these athletes are based on, there's some DNA, certainly, genetics, uh, training, and there's some desire involved in that. So it involves all three of those things, truly, but DNA or, or genetics plays a real big part of that. But then there's, there's determinism or fatalism, and it goes kind of like this. If it's going to be, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen, and you can't do anything about it. Such as Slumdog Millionaire movie begins with the words, it is written. So it has this kind of idea that, well, it's, it's predestined. It's going to happen. So let me ask you this question. Is it human responsibility or divine sovereignty? Which one is it? How would you answer that? How many would say, yes? You're right. It's both. I heard you guys say that. The Bible teaches actually both. And uh, this is what the, what the Bible teaches, is that Christianity believes historical events are determined by God through our choices. So you've got the combination of divine sovereignty and then human responsibility within that. A, a great example of that, I've given you a couple. I'm not going to go through both of them. But one of them is found in Acts 2.23. Let me read that, that one example. The other one we did a, a, about a month or so ago, actually a few months ago when we went through the book of Acts. Remember the shipwreck? With Paul, you can study that on your own because you got this, you got this beautiful weaving of both uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But check this one out, Acts 2.23. And this is, the, uh, this is Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost when there's a whole crowd of people gathered around. They were trying to figure out what is going on. And so he proclaims the gospel. This is what he says, though. And in this one verse, you have you got divine authority or divine... Uh, Sovereignty and human responsibility. He says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Okay, there's divine uh, sovereignty. And then he goes into human responsibility. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. (laughs) I love it. You're in big trouble. You killed him. But it was part of his plan. So you you got divine... Uh, authority, you've got divine sovereignty and human responsibility in that verse. How does that work out? I have no idea. Nor do you, okay? None of us do. I've read from a lot of great theologians, but the Bible teaches both. And I don't know how he works it. And that's part of the mystery of God. And that's why I honor him, bow down to him, and worship him. He is, he is awesome in every way and all that he does. But this is what I do know, is that, is this. And that is uh, God's sovereignty minus human responsibility. So we contend to, and, and we got churches that do this. We tend to lean to one extreme or the other. So God's sovereignty minus human responsibility equals fatalism. I don't know how many people I've, I've heard that has set under a heavy uh, sovereignty of God teaching, and they almost walk out of there like, what's the use? Why pray? Why do anything? That's fatalistic. You don't understand human responsibility woven within divine sovereignty. You're swinging out to an extreme. And so what that does is it empties you of hope. But you've got to remember that when you look at scriptures like James 4, 2, you have not because you ask not. In other words, God says that there are things that I would do in your life, but because you didn't ask, I'm not going to do it. What does that mean? Human responsibility. So there are things in our life that we could experience that we won't experience because we didn't ask for it. So, so somehow he weaves this divine sovereignty. That's why we can pray, because he is sovereign. So prayer should be even fired up that much more in our heart and in our life. He also says the, par- the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. So, so if you find yourself swinging to fatalism, it's because you've got too much of a heavy emphasis on sovereignty and not human responsibility. And then if you swing to the other extreme, human responsibility minus God's sovereignty equals what? This is kind of the background I was raised in. Fear. You ought to be frightened. If it's going to be, it's up to me. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. That's crazy. In fact, this is what drives perfectionism. How many perfectionists do we have in the house? <laughs> you don't believe in God's sovereignty. I mean, you're not really leaning on God's sovereignty. Uh, OCD, 
phobias? Have you ever uh, watched any of those hoarding shows? How many are a walking hoarding show, okay? How many of us, you know, we got, we, typically we hook up with someone, you know, my, my, my wife, uh, I tend to be more of that hoarder and she's more of that one that gets rid of things. You know, but she kind of overdoes it and then I overdo it and we, it's out of fear and we both have this fear working in our life and it's all based on you know, over-responsibility. We, we take too much responsibility rather than to rest in him and to trust in him. Uh, I just, I was just thinking... There was a story that I meant to share with you early on in this whole idea. Let me just throw it here and then see if you can make sense of it. As I kind of walk through this, I got a couple of illustrations as it relates to this. Uh, because I'm going to talk about balance, but I, I was just thinking of my wife as it relates to God restraining evil. I don't know how many times, I don't know how many times in my life and in my wife's life, she said, uh, she reminded me of an incident that happened when her and uh, three other gals were going up on a women's retreat and uh, she was driving my truck, and she was driving behind a semi, and some big metal object flew off the semi and was coming right at the truck. And that's one of the reasons why I don't like my wife to drive my truck. Uh, but I'm, I just threw that in there. I'm sorry. I had to say that. It's like, you, I, don't, I wouldn't drive that close to the semi. and You know, you start lecturing all that. But the thing was that she couldn't avoid it. She said this thing was coming at them, and if it would have gone through the front windshield, she said miraculously somehow God caused it to, to miss the truck. And if it would have come through the front windshield, it would have killed both my wife and the one sitting in the front seat with her. And, of course, they would have wrecked the truck, and, uh, which not that big of a deal, really. But, uh, but it would have killed the two that were sitting in the back seat. But I believe that because of God's sovereign hand, sovereign grace upon their life. He, he protected them. I don't know how many times in my own life I look back and I go, Woo! Oh my goodness, thank you, Jesus, for your protecting hand. How many by show of hands would say that's true? Oh my goodness, thank God for his sovereignty. And so what this should create within us is this balance. And the balance should work like this. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. That's my responsibility do not lean upon your own understanding. I can't make heads or tails of it. I know, it's God. He's sovereign. He's going to take care of you. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean upon your own understanding. So you can see that. Human responsibility, divine sovereignty. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Oh, God, I'm going to seek you. I'm going to look to you. And he will direct your paths. Divine sovereignty. So you got that even in that, in those, in that verse. And so there should be an alert. You need to be alert about life. But you can also be at ease and, 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 you know, do be responsible. But at the same time, ultimately, turn it over into his hands. A great verse for this. I gave you a number of verses up here talking really about both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But one of my favorites is Proverbs twenty-one thirty-one, where it says, The horse is prepared for battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. How many are familiar with that verse? That's a great verse. So you do the very best you can, but then turn the results over to God. So at some point, you've got to quit driving yourself. At some point, you've got to quit the workaholism and the perfectionism. At some point, you've got to say, hey, I did it the best I could based on God's giftings and how he's wired me up. So God, I give that over to you. You can't compare yourself with us because that's what drives that. You've got to work hard, but rest in him. Does that make sense? And that's, that would be that, that would certainly... Uh, that would be that balance. And by the way, why would you work hard? Why would you work hard? If you're working hard, if you're doing out of trying to fill the void inside, then you're, you're working hard for the wrong reason. What, that's what drives perfectionism and workaholism. It's because we're empty and our identity is tied to our work or to our performance as opposed to being tied to the cross where that has already been established. My identity is in Jesus. He loves me more than the galaxies of this world. And so then out of that fullness, then I perform and then I can have good healthy boundaries when I say hey I've done enough it's in God's hands so there's this balance beautiful balance I'm still trying to learn that balance I've been a workaholic and a perfectionistic very performance driven person my whole life but God has brought such freedom in my understanding of that that it's not about my glory I have what I need in him and out of that overflow then I can respond to the things of life to put on display his glory here's the next one so there's a plan, everything is in the plan, and Jesus is the point of the plan. 
By the way, I, I didn't say this in the first service, but you can write this down in the column of your notes. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. This is one of those secret things as it relates to the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man and how that works out. Those are the secret things. Also, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. That his wisdom is, is higher than our wisdom, as high as the heavens are above the earth. Talks about that. So let's talk about this for a minute. I'm going to take just a little longer two on this one and then we'll zip through the last. I'm doing that purposely. I know what time it is. And so let me share with you a story here. How many are familiar with J.R.R. Tolkien? Lord of the Rings. How many have ever watched Lord of the Rings movie? How many have never, ever seen Lord of the Rings? Oh my goodness. You guys are so... I don't know what to say. I'm not a sci-fi person myself, but I got roped into it and went to uh, the movies and actually like it. And there's a lot of interesting imagery, still a little bit over the top for me, because I like more real life stuff. That's not so real life, you know what I mean? And so, uh, but really fascinating. But the, I, I was really fascinated by the, by the author, J.R. Tolkien. He wrote the trilogy, Lord of the Rings, who was a Christian believer and a professor at Oxford and had a friend by the name of C.S. Lewis. How many of you remember C.S. Lewis? Uh, I want you to listen to this story. C.S. Lewis was an atheist. Lewis was a teacher at uh, Magdalen College. On the grounds of Magdalen College in Oxford, there is a walk around a river called Addison's Walk, named after the philosopher Joseph Addison. And you get to it by going over a bridge, very remote. And so they walked around Addison's Walk, J.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, one night many years ago. Lewis loved these old stories, these myths, these legends. Even though he was an atheist, an absolute modern man, he believed that good and evil were relative. We are here by accident. Everything about us is the product of natural selection. Killing the dragons and rescuing the damsel stories were just fairy tales. Yet Lewis was moved by these stories. There was something in him that stirred him with these stories. And so Tolkien said to Lewis, here's my theory of why you are so moved. Even though you are a modern man, these stories, though they are not true that you're stirred by historically and factually, are actually getting at underlying realities. For example, all of these stories, first say that this world is under an evil spell. Our problems aren't going to be dealt with just by education, science, technology. Let's just all work together and can't we all just get along? There is a sorcerer that has us under an evil spell. We know that and these stories all point to that. That's the first thing. The secondly, these stories point to the fact that the material world is not all there is. There is more to it than what meets the eye, that there is depth in reality. It is supernatural, not just a a natural world. And then thirdly, we need sacrificial love to save us. We're not going to be able to do it ourselves. Tolkien said, at the intellectual level, you may believe or have been taught certain things, but deep down in their heart, all human beings know that life is really like that. Evil spell, spiritual realm, we need sacrificial love. It is why these stories move us so. And Lewis said in response to J.R.R. Tolkien, interesting theory, but all the old myths are lies. In fact, Lewis said, myths are lies, though breathed through silver. And Tolkien said, no, they're not all lies. How about this one? The world is under an evil spell, but God sends his son into the world. And he's born in the most unlikely place in a manger in a little town called Bethlehem. He takes on the evil power socially and culturally and spiritually. And he goes to the cross and it looks like evil has defeated him. And yet he is raised from the dead. 
And he is bringing together a band of people that he's renewing their lives. And one of these days, he's going to restore the whole world. Lewis responds, that's just like all these other wonderful stories that point to these underlying realities. Tolkien says, no, no. Jesus Christ is the underlying reality to which all the other stories point. This story isn't just a story. It's factual and it's historical. He is the beautiful prince, ruler, and king your heart longs for to save this world. Now, through the influence of Tolkien, Lewis became a Christian and he became one of the greatest Christian apologists of the 20th century. If you've ever read any of his books and Mere Christianity, it is phenomenal. So why did I say that? Well, that's our point. That's our third point. There is a plan. Everything is in the plan. And Jesus is the point of the plan. Here, here, let, me, let me unpack that just really quick and then we're going to move to the next question. All of life is a story and the story already has a star and the star is not you or me. Okay, that's not what the world wants to hear. Thinking we are the star of life's story is what is fundamentally wrong with us and why the world is in such a mess. Because we all think we're the star. We want to make life about us. That's what, what Americans say to one another. And, of course, we know that the star of life's story came to rescue us by giving his life for us. His first coming came to fix our hearts. And in the second coming, he comes to fix this world. But the star of life story came to rescue us by giving his life for us and setting us free from the enslavement of thinking that we are the star. That's what we need to be redeemed from. Sin, the essence of sin is me taking God's place, trying to play God. But the essence of salvation is Jesus came and took my place on the cross, died on the cross for my sins. And and so, in fact, nothing is more life-liberating and soul-satisfying than to live your life for the star of life's story, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I have never found more satisfaction. I, I just, I haven't. I have not found it anyplace else. And I know some of you haven't either. And some of you have encountered the star of the story, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have never been the same. Game over. Game over. And so what is hope? It takes us to the next, next point here. By the way, let me just say this real quick. And I'm not just banging on the church. I'm part of the church. But beware of churches that want to make you the star. You're not the star. In fact, they'll teach it in such a way, it's called moralistic therapeutic deism. And they'll come to Jesus. He'll make your life wonderful. You know, he's a means to an end. You know, uh, make him a part of your life. No, no, no. He's to be the center of your life. He is to be not a means to an end, but the end. And see, that's, uh, we're here to love him and to serve him because of all that he's done for us. So just beware. Beware. It's very common in our societies today. Guys are building really big churches by, by saying that and promoting it. It's very, you know, it's palatable. It's what people want to hear. People don't want to hear that Jesus is the star and we're to serve him. It goes against our sinful nature within us. But that's, that's what sets us free. So what is hope? Here's your three fill-in-the-blanks here. Confident, joyful expectation. Confident, joyful expectation. And of course, we get that. We get hope through Christ. I don't know if you notice this, but in these first 14 verses, actually all the way up to verse 14, verses 3 through 14, 10 times it says this phrase, or similar to this phrase, in Christ, in the beloved, Ten times, in him, in him. In other words, Paul's trying to get something across. It's in him. He's the star of the show. Look to him. Live for him. Pursue him. Put him at the center of your life. He is our most satisfying reality. That's what he's saying. Jesus. Yes, I mean, this, that's what Desert Breeze is all about. It's all about Jesus. God wants your life to be all about him and living for him and loving him and experiencing him. And, and when you do that, confident, joyful expectation happens. I shared this, a, 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 I think it's been a month or so ago, but uh, I'm not a card player, not very good at playing cards. Any poker players in the house like playing poker? Anybody? Okay. Okay, you guys are going to hell. <laughs> oh, that's what they told me growing up. 
So we're going to have a special prayer meeting for those of you that play poker. That's just, okay, you're not going to hell. But if you have really big winnings or anything like that, make sure you pay your tithes. I'm kidding. Okay, I just really digress right there. My wife is a poker player. My, my sons, they can play poker and they enjoy it and they have a lot of fun with it. But uh, I'm not a good poker player because I don't even know what good cards are. And, and so, you know, I'm like, I, I, they'll deal me a hand and I'll have a hand. I go, hey, what do you think of this? Hey, hey. everybody will be, you know, throwing their cards in. Oh, okay, you won. It's like, oh, I didn't know I had that good of cards. And so, and so I don't even, you know, the poker face, they say they have the poker face. I don't even have a poker face. Because when I have a good hand, finally when I learn the game and have a good hand, I go, <laughs> And then everybody are going, ah, they're folding, just, Whoo. And so uh, here, here's the deal when it comes to knowing Jesus and walking with Jesus and having Jesus in your life because we're defining what is hope. What is hope? When you have a winning hand, you're not uptight or nervous you just enjoy playing the game. Now listen to me. Everybody look up here. In Jesus, you have the winning hand. Oh my goodness. In Jesus, you have the winning hand. Get rid of the poker face. Let the world know what we have in him. Oh my goodness. That's, that's that confident, joyful expectation. It's a part of our faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. Confident, joyful expectation. Here's three things. My bad things will work together for my good. Now, you'll notice in verses 11 and 12, did you notice what he said here? Let me reread them. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Does that sound familiar? How about Romans 8, 28? For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Isn't that a wonderful verse? <laughs> oh my goodness. My bad things will work together for my good. So here's what I need to understand. Better life circumstances are not what the Bible promises, but a better life in spite of my circumstances. So it doesn't promise you better life circumstances because you follow Jesus. Sometimes when you follow Jesus, really bad things happen because we have an enemy, the devil. We have a sinful nature we're working through. And then we got a world that's totally the antithesis of everything that we believe in. And so you need to always keep that in mind. Jesus suffered not that we wouldn't suffer, but that when we suffer, we would suffer well. And he says a couple of times here, verses 12 and 14, he says, to the praise of his glory. So he's working all of this for our good, his glory, so that we, no matter what goes down in our life, we can put on display his glory. Um, how many would agree that expectations play a big role in uh, hope in our lives, expectations? So if you have certain expectations when you enter into marriage, they're like way up here, but they come in about right down here. So you think, oh, I can't wait. And then they come in way down here. Ooh. You're going, oh, my goodness. I had no idea how hard it was going to be. Well, see, this gap between expectations and experience is called disappointment. Okay? So expectations play a big role. If I were to take you into a room and say, before we walked into this room, this is a honeymoon suite, you'd walk in and you'd go, not quite what I, not quite what I expected. You know, it's, uh, it's okay. But then if I took you into the very same room, before I took you into that room, I said, this is a jail cell. And you walked in, you'd probably say, wow, that's not so bad. So I tell everybody before they get married, it's like a jail cell. Um, I'm joking, I don't do that. That's, that, was, that was a bad one. I just thought of that right then. and I shouldn't think, uh, should I? Just stick to the nudes. And so expectations play a big role. And if you enter into the Christian life thinking you're not going to have problems, man, you're going to be disappointed. Why did you enter into the Christian life? If he's a means to an end, if he's just part of your life, you're going to be disappointed. But if he is the end, if he's at the center of your life, he is better than life. Anything that may come down in your life, he's better than life. I don't care what happens to you. He's better. He is more than enough. That's what it's saying here. And I like the way it says he will work. It gives us this language 
You know, I, and I put it on there, my bad things will work together, work together. If you take the individual circumstances of your life, kind of like eating the ingredients of, my wife made cookies yesterday, and so it'd be like eating the individual ingredients of the cookies. But I wait until they're all stirred up, and then I eat cookie dough, okay? How many cookie dough eaters do we have in the house? That's good stuff. Cookie dough. But you're not going to eat the individual ingredients because, oh, that's bland. Oh, that's bitter. Ooh, that's sweet, you know, just eating the sugar. But when they're, when they're put together, that's, what the, that's the idea. He takes them, he puts them together, bakes them in the oven, and mmm, that's what he does in our lives. By the way, I was told growing up that if you eat cookie dough, you're going to have worms. <laughs> While my dad was sitting over in the corner eating cookie dough. <laughs> so, but that's, uh, that's, how, that's what he's talking about here. So when God takes our lives. My bad things will work together for my good. So here's, here's my question for you. Some of you are going through real difficult times, and that's, that's a particular chapter in your life. Yeah, things might get better. Things might get worse. Are you cool with that? Can you trust his loving, wise control? You can, but can you? I know that you can because he's trustworthy. He's perfect in love. He's infinite in wisdom. He's unlimited in power. He's working in your life, but can you trust him with your life? Um, I think you should ask boldly, but surrender completely to God's will, no matter what goes down in your life. And this is what I've been learning over the years. The will of God is what you would choose if you knew everything God knew. And so whatever he brings, he's doing it because he loves you. And this is what I've been learning through the years too is that he's working to pry my fingers off of the things that I think I can't live without so that he can give to me more of what I really can't live without, and that's him. That's what he's doing. And uh, I like what Martin Luther says, next to faith, this is the highest art to be content with the calling in which God has placed you. So, bad things will work together for my good. But here, here's the next one. My truly good things can never be taken from me. Did you notice in verse 13, he says, in him you also, when you heard the, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What? The Holy Spirit comes to live within me, a slice of heaven on earth, intimacy with God, the creator. Yes, Guaranteed. Seals our lives. Never leave us or forsake us. And then he goes on, verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? Some translations actually say that you can actually word that, that we are God's possession. Now, if you have your Bibles open, just I have to turn a page, but it's in the same chapter. Look at verse 18. We're going to study it next week. Look at what it says in verse 18. Same chapter, it says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What does he talk about? The riches of his glorious inheritance. That you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance. The riches of whose glorious inheritance? His, God's. In who? Us. We're his most treasured possession. That's what it means. Now, what can't be taken from us? What are we talking about there? We're talking that he's our most treasured possession. That he is better than life. Having him in our life, there's nothing like it. But why is he our most treasured possession? Because we're his most treasured possession. That's what it's saying. That's the whole idea of this. The riches of his glory and inheritance in the saints. We are his most treasured possession. The Bible has the audacity to say that here's God who owns the universe with its galaxies and stars and planets. And yet he looks at you and says, you're my inheritance. When he looks at you, he feels wealthy. He sees you as more valuable than everything else in the universe put together. Heard a story of a guy that was in college struggling with a low self-esteem, went to a counselor. The counselor said, well, when was the last time you really felt good about yourself? 
more with kind of the circumstance. So he described he had played for kind of a, this, this small orchestra, uh, amateur orchestra, and he had played the trumpet, and he, there was a part where he had a trumpet solo, and when he played it, the people stood up with a standing ovation. And he goes, and I really felt good about me. So the guy at the counselor said, so the next time you start feeling down on yourself, just think of yourself doing that trumpet solo and people giving you a standing ovation. <laughs> I thought, what the heck? How much is this guy paying for this? What is that? What is that compared to this? What is that where one week the crowd applauds you and the next week the crowd boos you? What is that? That's a raindrop of affirmation compared to swimming in an ocean of God's attention, affection, and affirmation. Listen, you don't have to scrounge for compliments in affirmation when you have the king of the universe loving you so much he gave his life for you. Why would you ever harbor a grudge? They snubbed me. They hurt me. They hurt my feelings. Oh, my goodness. Why would you ever be upset over any negative circumstance? He's in control. Because we don't believe this. We don't live in the reality of that. I mean, if you can beat his love into your heart, you will be unbeatable with the storms of life that beat against your life, that come into your life, you will be unbeatable to anything. But we've got to beat that deep into our heart. I mean, this is worth everything to get. This is worth everything. To give up everything to have his affirmation and his love. Here's the last one, and the best is yet to come. So my bad things will work out for my good. So this is where I get this. This confident, joyful expectation. My best things will work out for my good. The truly good things can never be taken from me. And the best is yet to come. If God went to, in fact, you see that. Let me read verse 14. It just talks about this inheritance. We will acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So if God went to infinite depths to get you and paid an infinite price on the cross to get you because he valued you so much, what is he going to do when he actually meets you? That's what we're talking. We're talking heaven. What is he going to do when he finally sees you face to face? What is that going to be like? I love what, uh, what actually St. Teresa of Avila says. She put it this way. The first moment in the arms of Jesus is going to make a thousand years of misery on earth look like one night in a bad hotel. Everything you've ever longed for, everything you've ever wanted will be multiplied a trillion times It'll be present in your heart and multiply it a trillion times the first moment of his embrace of you when you see him face to face. The one who would rather die than to be without you in heaven. It's amazing. Totally amazing. Everything you've ever wanted and longed for. Everything wrong with you will be gone. Everything wrong with this world will be gone. All sin, suffering, and death will be gone. That's the best is yet to come. Let me read to you this, and then I'm going to pray. We'll be finished. This is uh, C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, uh, book seven of the Chronicles of Narnia. It's the end of the, end of the book. C.S. Lewis. Listen to what he says. Last story. This is where we're headed. When we die, we go to be with the Lord. He says, there was a real railroad accident, said Aslan. Who's Aslan? The lion. Who's, who's the lion? Jesus. He said softly, Your father and mother, all of you are, as you used to call it, in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The, holiday, the holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. God, thank you so much that we can have hope 
Jesus Christ was torn apart on the cross so that our lives could be put back together and experience hope and wholeness and holiness. And God, I know that one of these days, eventually, all the things in this world will be put back together and there will be no more sin, suffering, or death. Thank you for the hope we have in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Let me give you a blessing this morning. It's what I started with in our prayer. Romans, would you stand with me? Romans 15, 13. Here's my blessing for you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. In Jesus' name, and everyone said... Amen. God bless you.